you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. <clears throat> We're going to work through verses 8 through 22. 8 through 22. <clears throat> if, it, if it seems like we're skipping some verses, I feel like I should explain this. I said something in my house gathering this past week, but uh, so many of the themes in Acts are repeated multiple times throughout the book of Acts. And so um, if it hasn't been covered already, it will be covered. And <clears throat> so with that in mind, I'm not... We're not skipping over verses because we don't want to preach them or are too afraid to say what's in that passage or afraid we might offend somebody. There's, none of that's going on. Just Not that you were worried, but just want to make sure you understand that. Uh, I know, such a lightweight. That's, yes, such a lightweight. <laughs> uh, it's been fun I've been reading a, a handful of sermons here and there from uh, John MacArthur and and in his last, uh, in his sermon on, on Paul's sermon in Antioch, he had three sermons on that one sermon. Uh, so I felt like a lightweight reading John MacArthur's sermons on those few verses. Um, and his sermons, if you've read or heard any of them, are hour plus. Uh, so yes, lightweight it is. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 14. Here we go. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even when these words, or even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Tyconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Uh, let's pray again. Uh, Father, may our time in your word this morning be uh, profitable for your kingdom, may be fruitful in our lives. Father, may, um, may you guide our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Let me make a couple observations as we get started here. Uh, historically, in this region, uh, in the mid-1900s, as the automobile industry boomed in Dayton, many from the south moved north to work in these factories. And during this time, many churches were started. Many churches were started. Uh, indeed, many, particularly many Baptist churches, were started in this area. Uh, Southern Baptist churches alone, there's like 104 in the Dayton region, something like that. And I don't know the statistics, but I bet you half of them probably planted in the mid-1900s, so 1950s, 40s, 60s, somewhere around there. I was a youth pastor in one of these churches that was started around this time, and I was there for a couple years. This was back 2000, uh, what was it, three, four, five, something right around there. And there was a slight joke that I remember uh, hearing during that time. Uh, it, I mean, it was meant to be funny to some extent, but it was largely truthful, uh, or had a, a good bit of truth to it, that the method during that time of growing a church of the, the church increasing was to walk around the factory parking lots looking for Kentucky and Tennessee tags. Churches would grow as they reached people from other like mind, like past, like uh, beliefs, like experiences. Um, because it was, again, very common that people from Kentucky and Tennessee, more Bible Belt type areas, were moving north. And so it was easy to, to help those people, which those people certainly needed to find a church. And, and so there was a, a goodness to that. But if that's the only way the church was growing, then okay, now we, we have a bit of a, an issue. It's not uncommon to drive around this region, and the, the average age oftentimes is in much later generations, a majority of the roots, even birthplaces, be from the south. Again, not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, it's just an observation. Indeed, I, I, this is really not even uncommon in our country in general, but particularly in the Dayton region. Here's what I, I do think from this as we begin to look at this passage is that there is a systemic issue, though, that's, I think, clear from observation in our region and beyond. And that is this. Christians, by and large, have not learned how to engage those who disregard Christianity. I mean, we've not learned how do we converse with those who don't have the same roots as we do, meaning the same roots of a Judeo-Christian worldview. How do we engage people who, who maybe don't, aren't like anti-Christianity and, and overt in their uh, discouragement of it, but including those certainly, but, but people that just don't even come from 
the same thoughts or perspectives or the, the same roots, uh, even the basic understandings of what is truth and how do we get to truth and is there observable truth? Is there truth that's beyond, uh, that transcends our time and circumstances? Is there absolute truth? And Instead, we, we've learned how to engage only those who are maybe more likely to understand or agree. Many of us who grew up in the church learned the Romans road, or we learned uh, the faith program, or we learned the four spiritual laws, or, or maybe we learned how to share our testimony. I mean, the reality is it's much easier to talk about Jesus to someone who already agrees with you on some basic truths, particularly basic truths of the Bible. It's hard, though, to talk to people who are not beginning at the same basic set of truths that you are. Like, for many of us, it's hard to fathom that someone would not believe that there is absolute truth or that there is a moral law that transcends culture and desires. How do you converse with that? You, you, you can't just walk into that and, well, have you disobeyed the Ten Commandments? They go, well, what's the Ten Commandments? They say, well, have you murdered anybody? Oh, no, I, have, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, Jesus says if you've hated someone in your heart, well, okay, well, but I've hated them, but I don't think that that's wrong. What do you do? What do you do? I mean, most of us are gonna, in that moment are going to go, but you, you need Jesus. Just do you need Jesus? Do you, do you just need Jesus, right? What do you do? Here in Acts, at this point, obviously, as we've been studying, the beginning of the church, but what we have here is particularly the beginning of the engagement of the gospel to the broader culture. Up until this point has largely been the engagement of people who already have an understanding and a basic set of beliefs concerning the Scriptures. They've been sharing the gospel with Jews. They've been sharing the gospel with people who weren't Jews, but that believed or had a faith in the Scriptures. And here they're beginning to engage people with that believe, first of all, in multiple gods. A pluralistic society, a pantheon of gods. The god Zeus and Hermes and the rest of the pantheon. How do you begin to engage that kind of culture? They would worship one god, this culture would, because they thought or believed that it would bring blessing on a particular area of their life. So they had a, a God for this, a God for this, a God for merchant uh, uh, or merchandise or selling and trade. They had a God for war and a God uh, for sex and, and uh, a God for uh, vegetation and, and growth and farming. And, and so they would worship that God in order to, to, to hopefully ensure or to manipulate, if you will, blessing in that particular area of their life. Our culture, the reality is, is much the same. Our culture is much more like Acts 14 than we realize. It's much more like Lystra than we realize. We have the God of money. His temple is probably your bank account or your workplace. We have the God of children. Its temple is our home, the sports field, or school and education. We have the God of entertainment. 
His temple is probably on the living room and sits on your wall. We have the God of self-righteousness. Usually its temple has four brick walls and a white steeple. We have the God of the American dream. Its temple is American politics. Our culture is just the same. We have a pantheon of gods. We live in a pagan, pluralistic culture. Like you understand that the following phrases don't mean anything in our culture anymore. I go to church. I love God. I believe I'm going to heaven. You realize that those just carry little to no meaning anymore. I mean, shoot, I, I've even discovered that the phrase, I went to seminary, doesn't mean anything either. But here's the reality. You understand that our hearts don't look much different. For those who follow Jesus, they, they don't look much different. More on that in a few minutes. But here's the question for now. How do we interact and pursue with grace in a culture like Lystra? In a culture like ours? Basically, what I wanted to give us today is kind of four helpful points from Paul's engagement at Lystra that will help, hopefully help guide us as we think about how do we share the gospel in our culture with the people around us. The first is this. We must care for the physically broken and needy. The physically broken and needy. Notice it says in the passage that this gentleman that Paul came to heal had, had the faith to heal. Had the faith to heal. Such faith was probably aroused by the preaching of the gospel. It says that after listening to Paul. So listen, what was Paul saying? Oh, Paul was preaching the gospel. So after listening to Paul, it says that, that basically something had come up in him where he had this faith to heal. But notice that it wasn't a faith for salvation. It was a faith that was, it was not yet seeking for salvation in the sense of forgiveness, eternal life, entrance into the kingdom of God. But here's the key. He believed that the person who was to be healed believed that there was something of power and ability in the person who was speaking the gospel that was there and available to fix his situation. He believed that the one speaking the gospel had something of value in what he was sharing, something worth listening to. As we think about care for the physically broken and needy, we have to understand that word and deed both have to come together. Word and deed must be two sides of the same coin that we're spending every time. Paul preaches... And Paul heals. He preaches and he heals. Jesus proclaimed the good news and he cared for the needy and the broken. Matthew 9.35 And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and what? 
healing every disease and every affliction. He's doing both. Peter, in Acts 9.35, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Go back and read that account. Peter is both healing and proclaiming the gospel. It's both word and deed. Philip, same thing, Acts 8, verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. When did they pay attention? When there was word and deed, both things together. We live in a culture, even a church culture, where we have many who, it's just word and word, and there's no concern for deed. And then there are churches where there is deed, deed, you got to go do, 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 and there's no concern for actually proclaiming the word. It's both. It's both. It may not be both in the same, like, five minutes, but it's got to be both in the continuation of time, like, over the period of a relationship, there, there's got to be both. Listen, care for the brokenness gives credibility to the sharing of the gospel. Why? Because at the very least, at the root of every person's heart is a longing for restoration. At the root of every person's heart is this innate, God-created, God-occasioned need for restoration. Physical brokenness points to a greater reality. That is our broken relationship with the Father. Every human longs for restoration. Every human longs for something that is broken to be fixed. Now they may not recognize it as broken, but they know something is wrong. But physical needs, we clearly see what is broken. Those are easy to see. People are, it's easy to notice those things. People see those. And so, word and deed must belong together. Now, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge, particularly for us in this day, in this culture, at this time in history. Look what happens in the story. Paul heals this man, and the credit goes where? To Zeus and Hermes. It goes to the Greek gods. Oh, whoa! They worship other gods in response to Paul's healing. This is the opposite of what Paul wanted. It's the opposite of what Barnabas wanted. It's the opposite of what all of us should want. So as we think about caring for the broken and the needy, we need to recognize this. Hear me clearly. In our culture, caring for the broken, the oppressed, the needy is a convenient agenda item for the socially, politically, and morally liberal. It is a convenient agenda item for them. The liberal left seems to have the corner market in our culture on care for the needy and the oppressed. So here's the danger. The danger is that the gospel, our witness, Christ, could get lumped in with the agenda of those who certainly care little to zero about such things as the gospel. 
our witness for Christ. It can also cause confusion here. Let me help. It could cause confusion for us in assessing what we should be about. What we should be about as Christians. What I mean by that is we can let what seems to be the passion of those who would oppose the gospel, and just because they happen to be right on one particular thing, we won't touch it because it might give credit to the wrong people or the wrong cause or the wrong situation. For example, let me give you a perfect example. The immigration issue. The immigration, the, the refugee issue. In our country, if you're a Republican, you want little to no immigrants. If you're a Democrat, apparently open the doors to them all. But as a Christian, how do we think about such a thing? Again, the problem is that in many minds, if you support caring for the immigrants, then you must be a liberal. You must be part of that cause. And so, because we want to not be a part of that cause, the liberal cause, we go, well, I don't want to touch that issue because that's what they're about. And so we let, we let those things determine for us what we should be about as Christians instead of God's Word, instead of the Gospel, instead of love and care for the poor and the broken and the needy. And Listen, spending time caring for a broken person might get you lumped in with the wrong people. The people who are just paying it forward. Or the people who think, oh, it's just nice for you to serve in a soup kitchen. It might even get you lumped in with the same category of people who do nice things to rescue animals. But the question is, is should that define what we do? Paul does it. Paul will continue to do it. Even though he gets lumped in with the wrong crowd. But what I want you to see is this. We should care for the needy and broken even if the credit is confused. But we should indeed also fight for the right understanding. Paul doesn't just go in and heal the guy and talks about Jesus a little bit and kind of lets them do their God worship, Zeus worship Hermes thing, he fights against it. Paul cares in word and deed, but they were also quick and careful to not be associated with giving credit to the wrong God. Right? What do they, what do, they do in the story? He heals them. They start coming out to worship. He goes, no, 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 guys, no, 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 no. As we're going to see, he doesn't just slipping Jesus in there, he actually goes after what their hearts are worshiping. So he kind of does two things. He not only uh, confronts the idea that that they are not a part and not doing this to give credit to the wrong person, to the wrong people, to the wrong thing, the wrong agenda, the wrong movement. We're not a part of that. But also, while we're talking about it, let me confront what's in your heart, too. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
You see, they were quick and careful to not be associated with giving credit to their own God. Listen, we care for the poor. We should care for the needy, the broken. The immigrant, as the example I gave before. But we do not, and we're careful to not do it in the name of the God called progressivism or socialism, capitalism, republicanism, or whatever other ism God you have. We're to care for the things God cares for and care for them in the way He cares for them. So here's the point. If we're going to reach a a pluralistic society, our words must be matched with deeds. Even if those deeds might get associated to the wrong movement. But we fight hard for it to not be the case that it is. Second, we must persevere through their hardness toward the gospel. So word and deed. Second, persevering through their hardness. Persevering through the difficulty. Look at 19 through 22 very quickly. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. A couple quick notes here. Notice that the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium to keep Paul and Barnabas from sharing the gospel and winning people who weren't even Jews. Now you need to pick up on two things here. Both the fact that they did what I just said, and two, they traveled over a hundred miles to do this. They didn't get in their private jets. They got on their probably their private camels and walked and rode. So notice their intensity, their intense hatred for the gospel, that they would be willing to do this. But then notice that that is the same hatred that is now opposing the gospel in Paul and Barnabas here in Lystra. They were opposed because they called for an abandonment of their gods. Both the gods of the Jews and the gods of the Gentiles here. I mean, I hope you understand that good teaching, good preaching, good encouragement, good, good gospel-centered friendship is, is nothing more than a call for people to abandon their gods. Every day, there should be a call in your life to abandon whatever gods you're worshiping, to worship the true God. But what I want you to notice very quickly here is that notice that God sustains Paul, and they continue to derby and then they return to Lystra. Did you notice that in the story? He goes back. Now he's gone for a while, but then he goes back to the place that stoned him. Now I don't, I don't think that this is saying that, that you always got to go back. I mean, I don't think that's the point. The point is they persevered. Our tendency is to give up. Our tendency is to want to walk away. We want to take the passage where it says that they, dust, they, they dust, uh, shake the dust off their feet and, and moved on. We like that passage, right? 
But here Paul goes back. So sometimes you shake the dust off and walk away. Other times you, you go back. Paul and Barnabas, they go back this time. But here's what I want you to notice as well. That the crowd is always fickle. The crowd is fickle. You and I, for goodness sakes, are fickle. Listen, it's the same bunch of people that were worshiping them as gods that are now stoning him. Arguably moments later. I mean, think about how quickly they forgot the miracle. How quickly it just left their minds. John MacArthur said this, Disillusioned fanatics are easily led into contradictory action. And you see this all over our cultural landscape. Never mind. Disillusioned fanatics are easily led into contradictory action. Disillusioned people grow sullen and sour, and usually they take out their resentments on the one who spoiled their illusion. Listen, the, the experience of this in our broader culture, it's very similar in our church as well, in churches as well. Many times you and I are functional polytheists worshiping the gods of our own choosing. And then when the preacher, the church, pastors, friends in the faith come along their way and spoil your illusion, we begin to take out our resentment on those who are in our way. Oh, and we have very crafty ways of justifying our resentment for those who spoil our illusions. Listen, you have to be aware of these people. Even inside the church. Consistently and persistently calling these people to repentance, to abandon, forsake their gods, to worship the true living God, just as Paul and Barnabas are doing here in Lystra. So the crowd is always fickle, you got to understand that. If you're going to reach anybody, people are fickle. You and I are fickle. We could be one way one moment and another way the next moment. Particularly when someone pricks our God of choice. But here, I also want you to see the grace in this part of the passage as well. We don't grow into Christ-likeness without hardship. You and I will not grow into Christ-likeness without hardship. What's he say? He says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. What, what's, he, what's he talking about there? Is he saying that we kind of, as long as we suffer enough, we'll make our way to heaven, that there's kind of this earning our way to heaven through suffering? Not at all. Not at all. Let me quote Timothy Keller here. He says, The things that actually give you joy, like dependence on God, humility, humility exemplified in things such as the relief of years of trying to save face and trying to nurture hurt feelings and a hurt ego all the time, so humility, the dependence on God that actually brings you joy or the ability to pray, 
that these things that actually give you joy, that you, you never spend enough time with God to find these things unless hardship happens. And therefore, it's not hardships that earn us our way into heaven, but I like the way he says this, it's helpful, but hardships drive us right into the kingdom of God. They drive us. Why? Because they're driving us towards dependence and humility. Praying. They drive us into the kingdom of God. Also to speak about this in the context of reaching other people. Listen, how we suffer points people to Christ or points people away from Christ. Again, we, we talked about this already, but it's, it's likely the stoning of Stephen and the way Stephen suffers that God used to soften and change Paul's heart. Listen, you and I as Christians don't have to hide the reality of the difficulty of suffering. But at the same time, again, I wish I had more time to work through this, but at the same time, you and I can have poise and patience through suffering because we know that God is going to use this suffering for something beautiful. And so our suffering points people towards Christ or away from Christ. So it must be word and deed. We must care for the broken and the needy. We must persevere through hardness toward the gospel. Number three, we must identify the idols of the people. Identify the idols of the people. Say, wow, this is hard work if we're going to share the gospel. Yes, it is. Identify the idols of the people. Paul and Barnabas, watch what happens in the story. They tear their clothes when the people begin to worship them. It says they rip their clothes off. I mean, are they getting ready to get into the ring with a boxing match? I mean, why, why are they ripping their clothes off? They were ripping their clothes off because it was a gesture suggesting that blasphemy was about to be committed. Something blasphemous was about to happen. We cannot let this happen. As a Jew, they were distressed about receiving such attention, such credit, and detracting from the glory of the one true God. Unlike Herod, as we read before, they did not want to be confused with deity whatsoever. So they tear their clothes. Recognize, what are they recognizing as they're doing that? They recognize that, that they're about to worship something else other than God. As we think about this, listen, sharing the gospel with those who have a totally different framework is challenging. Let me explain. Paul begins, when he gets into Lystra, with this he says, We bring you good news. We bring you good news. Okay, so here's where we're going to really start putting the rubber to the road on how do we engage uh, a culture like in our words and, and what we say and so on and so forth. So here we go. Paul begins with a familiar appeal. Bring you good news. Notice what Paul doesn't do in this passage. Paul doesn't begin the same place he began in his last speech in Antioch. Where did Paul begin in his speech in Antioch? Who was he speaking to? He was speaking to Jews, right? Where did he begin when he spoke to the Jews in Antioch? He began with promises. 
He began with the kingdom of God. He began with recounting Israel's history and saying that it all pointed towards Christ and that Christ fulfills all the promises. Paul doesn't begin there here. Paul doesn't begin by pulling out the Romans road or four spiritual laws or the gospel cube if you've seen one of those things. He doesn't start there. It's right. If you have if you don't have no clue what I'm talking about just just let it go. It's, you're going to start, someone's going to jump with Google. What's the gospel cube? That's awesome. In some cases it is. In some contexts it is. In this context, it's, it's not what Paul does. But this is so key. Paul starts with the good news about what? Let me give you the two things that Paul starts with the good news about. The first one is this. The possibility of escaping the futility of idolatry. He starts with the possibility of escaping the futility of idolatry. And two, coming to know the living God. It's the good news. At least the beginning of the good news. He starts with the possibility of escaping the futility of idolatry and two, the coming to know the living God. Verse 15, he says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. Listen, the good news is consistently and frequently the idea of one of rescue and liberation. To be set free. We bring you good news. We bring you the way to freedom. And then he goes on. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Let's look at that word vain. What's he mean by vain? What's he saying to them about their gods? Some translations say worthless. I like that word. That you should turn from these worthless things to a living God. The idea of uh, vain here is worthless, empty, deceptive, ineffective. Worthless, empty, deceptive, ineffective. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Like This is what they would have heard. is what you're, the, the gods that you worship are promising you fulfillment, but are leaving you empty. Or the gods that you're worshiping, they have you enslaved to their temporary and momentary delights. Paul's saying they're, they're dead. The gods you worship are empty. It's pointless. You see, in a polytheistic society like this, you worshiped the God who would help you. So based on like whatever your greatest need really is what's driving what you're worshiping or what you most want, and so you worship that God in order to get it. So for instance, if you were a farmer, you would worship the God of the harvest. If you're a soldier, the God of war. If you wanted to be a mom, the God of fertility. And so you would go offer sacrifices to, to these people. But here's the deal. When you worshipped these gods, you were actually worshipping the thing you wanted. You didn't want that god, like the Zeus or Hermes or 
uh, Eros or whoever. What you wanted was to be successful in your harvest. You wanted to be successful at war or to live, or you wanted to have a child. So you wanted motherhood, you wanted farming, you wanted war. These are the things that you're actually worshiping. The gods were a means to get to that. And such, hopefully you can see that their idolatry is not any different than ours. And not any different than the culture around us. But here's what I want to say, is that identifying their idolatry should be easy if you are accustomed to identifying idolatry in your own heart and life. You see, when we go to engage the culture, the reason why many Christians are left in neutral or ineffective in speaking the gospel, because we don't know how to identify the idols of our culture, and the reason we don't understand how to identify the idols of the culture is because we don't know how to identify the idols in our own hearts in life. For example, for us, if I could just have a certain size house, then I can have this kind of life that I want. Or if I could just keep my children happy, then I can have this life that I want. Or if I could just exert enough effort to make the events or people around me do what I want, then I will have the life I want. Or if I could just avoid stress or avoid conflict and stay away from these things, then I would have the life that I want. Listen, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, their idolatry is not any different. We long for many of the same things. Our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, even ourselves, we look to these things believing that if we just do all the right actions, say all the right things, think all the right thoughts, that we will somehow get the life that we want. If we just sacrifice the right things to these gods, if I just give the right amount of, of work to my, uh, to my job, the right amount of hours, then I will get the life that I want via the paycheck that I should receive or the promotion that I should get. I mean, you might as well raise up a, a lamb and go slaughter it. Listen, everybody is living for something. Everybody is sacrificing for something. And whatever it is, that is your master. That is your God. I would ask you this question. What do you spend all your time running around trying to make sure it happens? What do you spend all your time and energy trying to isolate yourself from? That thing is your God. If it's about keeping your kids happy, then here's the reality. They are your master. That is your idol. It is your God. It is telling you what to do and when to do it and to what extent you should do it. If getting people to do what you want them to do, then unwittingly, they are actually your master. Do you hear me? If you're trying to manipulate people into getting them to do what you want them to do, then who is it that's dictating the actions that you're doing to those people? It's that person. It's those people. They're your master. All the while you're trying to think, I'm controlling them. Everybody lives for a master. There's no way around this. This was Jesus' point in Matthew 19. Go read the whole passage later for right now, 16 through 22. 
And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus goes on for a few and then pick up in 21. It says, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying that a rich man can't get into heaven? Because if he is, then all of us in this room are in deep trouble. Here's what he's saying. The rich man's master was his money. The rich man's God was his money. And here's Jesus' point. Jesus identified the idol or the master of the rich man. And so repentance for this man looked like forsaking his money, walking away from this God to go worship the true and living God. Paul's doing the same thing. Walk away from these gods in order to worship the true and living God. Again, this wasn't for the rich man to earn his salvation, but it was proof that his faith was real, that his faith was not dead, that his faith was real. And so Paul is saying, these gods that you worship are dead. You're doing this in vain. These gods that you worship, they cannot deliver what they have promised you because they are dead. And you will be empty when it's all done. You've heard phrases like this. Kids make great kids, but they make terrible gods. Or money makes for great fun, but it makes for a terrible god. Or control makes for great temporary success, but it makes for a terrible god. This is all that Paul is doing. He is assessing their idolatry, calling it for what it is. It is vain and worthless. And then he's calling them to repentance and showing them Jesus is so much better. You see, what you and I need, what our culture needs, is not to add Jesus to their pantheon of gods, to our pantheon of gods. What we need is Jesus exclusively. John Stott said this, Wherever we begin, we shall end with Jesus Christ who is himself the good news, and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. We must, wherever we begin, we end with Jesus. And so we offer them Christ and call them to repentance. We offer them Christ and call them to repentance. Here's what Paul's doing. He says, he's saying to them, when he says that this is vain, these gods are vain, it's worthless, he's saying that your master is abusive and deceitful. The gods you're worshiping are abusive and deceitful. If you've studied any mythology, you, you see that that's certainly true. The gods are all up there running amok, trying to do and just manipulate people into, and playing with them like toys. So this is not a, a big reach for for Paul, in the sense of them being abusive and deceitful. But our gods are abusive and deceitful too. Your gods that you worship other than Christ are worthless as well. Success, money, sex, power, control, they're all worthless. They will never make you full or satisfied. 
It will never give us the life that we were created to have. Someone said this, these gods overpromise and underdeliver every time. But not only are they worthless, like what Keller pointed out, he said this, your gods punish you whenever you fail as well. Your gods punish you whenever you fail. Just think about that. Think about this. You worship your children. You want their affirmation so bad. And you fail at getting it. That God will punish you the rest of your life. When events don't go as planned as you have tried to make them happen, and they don't happen, that God will punish you the rest of your days. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You get up in the morning, you're having a great day, and then something happens, and you, you realize, by, hopefully by God's grace, that you're worshiping something, and it got taken away from you. Something stood in the way of your illusion. What you wanted. And then now, the rest of your day is just terrible. Why? You're being punished for your failure the rest of the day. So not only are your gods worthless, he's saying to them, but they also punish you. But here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says, and this is what Paul says to us today too. But my God is the opposite of your master. My God is the opposite of your God. In verse 16, he says this, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, real quick, it doesn't mean that God, it was pleasing to God for them to do what they wanted to do. No, this was, a, this was a, an allowing of them to experience destruction and condemnation. It was a condemning of their own choice going on. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What's he saying? I mean, this is, again, Paul, don't worship these things. They're vain. They're, they're worthless. But my God did not leave himself without a witness. Paul is saying this to them. Even when you did not acknowledge me, even when you did not acknowledge God, He still was good to you. Something of God's character is on display in the regular provision of life's necessities. Something of who God is is on display as He continues to provide and sustain life on this earth even when billions of people do not love and worship Him. God's goodness is experienced by everyone who enjoys the benefits of living in His creation. Listen, the pleasures of life are an encouragement to believe in a beneficent Creator. Paul's saying something similar in Romans, that God has given Himself a witness. Why? Because of His beneficence. 
To worship and serve created things, though, rather than the Creator, is the reason why God abandoned the nations to the consequences of their rebellion. But God still cared for them in the midst of their rebellion, saying, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. Listen, everything good that you have is from Him. Paul is saying to those in Lystra, everything good that you have is from Him, and you don't even recognize Him for who He is. All the good that you have is from Him, but you don't acknowledge Him. Now it's at this point, right, that Paul is cut short. At least as the passage goes. But I imagine the rest of His talk, as we see in other passages of Scripture here, particularly in Acts, that it would have went something like this. My God can liberate you. My God can liberate you. What you need is to be set free. Only my God can satisfy your hearts. That's Paul's point here at the end. Only my God can do this. And it did this even when you didn't acknowledge Him. Only my God can satisfy your hearts. Only He can tend to your every need because only He knows, understands, and is powerful enough to care for your every need precisely the way you need it cared for. But what you also need is this. You need a God that can forgive you. A God that isn't deceptive. A God that doesn't use you and abuse you. A God that instead sent His most precious possession to die for your failings. A God that will not only commune with you, but a God that has provided a means for it to actually happen. Listen, don't miss the irony of the crowd's proclamation. Back to verse 11, the second part says, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Can you imagine where Paul would have likely went with their ironic statement? Indeed, the living God has come down to us in the likeness of men. He came to set the captives free, those enslaved to the gods of their own making. He came to pay the penalty for our sin, the sins that blind us to the goodness and rightful worship of God. Church, the God of the Bible is a better master than the idols that you and I seek to submit our lives to every day. And He's a better master than any idol that your co-workers, your friends, your children, your neighbors, your classmates are worshiping this very second. Only He, only God can satisfy your deepest longings and mine. Only He can pay the price for your deepest regrets and failings. And that's what Paul is after here. This happiness that you have, that, 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 that you have from a God when you didn't even acknowledge Him, you will never be happy until you are happy in Christ. 
Again, that's why he tells them that, that it was God who was satisfying their hearts with food and gladness, even when they didn't acknowledge him. Listen, Jesus died to set those in Lystra free from their evil masters. He died to set you and I free from our evil masters and our co-workers and our neighbor, our friends, our children, our classmates so that we may serve a master who is gracious and kind and just and merciful. One who sends his own son to die for us. One who paid the price for your sin and mine. And here's the reality. When you and I believe this message, we will share this message. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, thank you that... um, Father, you identified the idols in our hearts. Father, that you have cared for the broken and the needy, and certainly that includes us. People who have been broken by our sin. People who break other people because of our sin. People who are needy, not just physically, but needy spiritually needing restoration, needing our broken relationship with You fixed, restored, made whole again. I pray that we would see this as a reality in our lives and be so moved and encouraged to share this message elsewhere. Help us to care for the broken and the needy. Help us to persevere through hardness. Help us to identify idols and help us to call people to repentance and to faith in Christ. Help us in these ways. Father, help us to see that this is the This is the work of the Spirit every day in our lives. This is the work of the church every day in our lives. It is to persevere with us. It's to care for us in word and deed. Father, to identify the idols in our hearts and to lead us to Christ in repentance every day. So Father, may this not be a hard leap for those that you've put in, for us to do the same in the lives of those around us. I give you praise and Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.